This morning we are continuing to look together at Jesus' messages to the seven churches in Revelation. This morning we come to two churches whose reputation doesn't match the reality of their situation. One of these churches has a reputation for being alive. But Jesus says, you're dead. The other church we're going to look at has a reputation for being weak. But Jesus says to that church, in me you have security and you have power. And as we hear Jesus' words, the challenge for us is going to be, are we willing to look past our reputation, whatever it is, and see the reality of our situation? So turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. In the Church Bible, that's page 1235. And in the large print, 1916. Revelation 3, and I'll read verses 1 to 13. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast. And repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come in the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. 
Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. This passage begins with a warning to the complacent. And it ends with a promise for the frail but faithful. First of all, Jesus gives a warning to the complacent. Wake up and press on. Verses 1 to 6 are addressed to the church in the city of Sardis. And Jesus' message to this church is different from the messages we've seen so far. Three of the previous four messages have mentioned persecution on the church, pressure from outside. But there's no indication the church in Sardis is facing any persecution. Then two of the previous messages mentioned a threat from within the church. We saw that last week. People in the church were living compromised lives. Or they were teaching it was okay to compromise. But there's no indication the church in Sardis is facing that kind of internal threat either. Apparently, there are no followers of Balaam or Jezebel in this church. No one is trying to entice or mislead these believers into sin, the way the people are in Pergamum and Thyatira. So then, what issue does Jesus have with this church? He spells it out in verse 1. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. What does Jesus mean? He means the church in Sardis has come to resemble the city of Sardis. Have you ever heard the expression that so-and-so has the Midas touch? You've heard that? Meaning, everything that he or she touches turns to gold. Well, the legend of King Midas had a connection to the city of Sardis. The Pactolus River flows near Sardis. And that was a place where gold was mined. And according to the legend, King Midas had bathed in that river. Then later on, Sardis became the capital city of King Croesus. And his wealth became legendary. There was a time when people with huge wealth were said to be as rich as Croesus. So Sardis had a reputation for wealth. And it had a reputation for being secure. The fortress of Sardis was surrounded on three sides by sheer rock cliffs. Cliffs that were supposedly impossible to climb. Sardis had a reputation for being an impregnable city. In fact, if someone wanted to talk at that time about achieving the impossible, they would talk about capturing Sardis. Everyone knew you couldn't capture Sardis. Sardis was safe and secure. But it became so sure about its security that it fell asleep. During the reign of King Croesus, the city was attacked by the Persians. But the people of Sardis were so confident 
They didn't bother to guard those cliff tops properly. After all, no one could climb up that way, right? But some Persian soldiers did climb up that way. And Sardis was captured. The city with the great reputation put so much trust in that reputation that it went to sleep and was taken by surprise and fell. It was a famous story in the ancient world. But here Jesus says to the church in Sardis, you haven't learned from your own history. You have a big reputation as a church. But that's given you a false sense of security. You're not alert anymore. In fact, you've become so complacent, you've fallen asleep. We know that's what Jesus means by the word death in verse 1, because at the start of verse 2, he calls them to wake up. So this church is not irreversibly dead. It's asleep. Now, obviously, Jesus isn't saying they are literally snoozing in the church pews. Some of them might be doing that, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. So what does he have in mind when he accuses this church of being asleep? Well, look at the answer that we're given in verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If this is what it's going to mean for Sardis to wake up, then this also tells us the ways they're asleep. First of all, The church's work and witness is unfinished, Jesus says. Now they must have taken these things seriously in the past. Because at some point they built up a reputation for being alive. They were vibrant. They were known as a church that was making an impact. But over time they've read too much of their own publicity. Somewhere along the line, they've begun to assume they've arrived. The hard graft has been done. The church is established. Now they can kick back and chill out. Somewhere along the line, they started thinking, well, so long as things keep ticking over, that'll be fine, won't it? It's sad to hear about that church down the road that's closed its doors. It's really sad. But thank goodness we're not in danger of that here in Sardis. That's what this church is thinking. But Jesus says, wake up. Remember the history of your own city. The moment the city felt most secure, that was its moment of greatest danger. And Jesus says to the church, it's the same for you. The moment you look at another closed-down church somewhere else and think, well, that could never happen to us, that's the time it's most likely to happen to you. And Jesus says that's where you are. You think the hard work has been done. 
But as far as I'm concerned, says Jesus, your deeds are unfinished. I still have work planned out for you. You don't get to decide when the work is done. I have put more works of love and witness and service right in front of you. Wake up and see them. That's the first way Sardis is asleep. They have clocked off when there's still work to be done. And this church has also allowed itself to forget the truth. The things they have received and heard. That's the second piece of evidence they're asleep. And that can happen so easily in a church. The attitude begins to be, well, we all know what the Bible says, don't we? We believe it. We get it. Can we talk about something else now? When a church gets to that stage, it's unlikely they're going to leave the Bible out of things completely. No doubt the sermons will still keep going on. There's probably still a Bible in the pulpit. It's just not referred to very much anymore. And some people might still bring their own Bibles, but there's less of a sense that they're coming to hear from God through his living word. Now they're coming to hear the preacher's take on last week's news. Or the film he watched last week. And what lessons we might learn from those things. People in the church still believe in the cross and sin and judgment and holiness and Christ's return. They believe in those things, but they're just not spoken about anymore. They're assumed. Then before too long, they're forgotten. That's what's been happening at Sardis. They might not have denied the truth, but they have forgotten it. Jesus says, remember what you've received and heard. Hold it fast. Repent of your forgetfulness. What a sad situation. It's a good job we're not in that kind of danger. We're going strong after 41 years here. We have a great building. We have two pastors. We have Bible teaching every week. It would take years for us to get in trouble. So we don't need to worry about this particular message from Jesus, do we? If any of us have begun to think that way, Jesus says, wake up you're already starting to doze off. We've seen these messages are here to call the church to war. And one battle we are called to is the battle of staying awake, fighting against complacency. Very few people fall asleep instantly. We drift off to sleep. And churches are just the same. And so week by week, day by day, we have to intentionally refocus ourselves on God's truth. And on the work of prayer and witness and obedience to God. 
So let's help one another in this. If you see someone dozing off, give them a nudge. And that might mean a literal nudge in the sermon, but it's more likely to mean talking with them about the struggles and the encouragements of living for God. Praying with them. You can even do that before you leave the building. Let's keep each other awake. And let's come here on Sundays expecting to hear from God and be challenged as well as being comforted. When a church starts to doze, one of the first truths to be forgotten is the truth that Jesus is coming back. A drowsy church begins to live as if this present age is going to go on forever. There's not much longing or expectation for Christ's return in a drowsy church. And so Christ's return will come as a rude awakening. In verse 3, Jesus says to Sardis, If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. Now that doesn't mean he's coming to steal things. It means his arrival will be unexpected. Of course, none of us know the day or the hour of Christ's return. But if we're awake as Christians, then whenever he returns, it won't be unexpected. We'll have been living with it on our minds and on our hearts. So we've heard Jesus' challenge to Sardis. But we know, don't we, that each of these seven messages ends with encouragement. That's the pattern they take. Encouragement to persevere and conquer and be victorious. So what encouragement does Jesus give Sardis? Well, he begins by pointing to those in the church who are still awake. Verse 4. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. In the ancient world, white robes were given to winning athletes. But in the book of Revelation... White robes are not a reward that we win. They're a reward Jesus has won for us. Later on in the book, we're told the robes are white because they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so the encouragement here is, don't be one of those who sleep their lives away in complacency. Keep going for God. And at the finish line, you will receive the reward Jesus has won for you. We might wonder what this book of life is in verse 5. Well, there are various heavenly record books mentioned in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New. We'll be told later in Revelation, heaven has a record of everyone's deeds. But that is not the book mentioned here. The book of life is not a book of deeds. It's a book of names. 
It's also known as the Lamb's Book of Life. And so you don't get into this book because of what you've done. You get in because of what the Lamb has done. The Lamb is Jesus. And we've already seen in chapter 1, he died to free us from sin. The book of life is the book of those who belong to Jesus because they've been saved by his blood. But why does Jesus mention that particular book here? Well, remember, the church in Sardis has been relying on its reputation. Literally, the text says, its name for being alive. But Jesus says to his faithful people, press on. What matters is not what kind of name you have on earth. It's whether your name is written in heaven. When we keep our eyes on the reward Jesus has won for us, that will keep us pressing on. Or as Paul put it, we will keep straining towards what is ahead. We'll not be content to exist on a reputation. We will want to be really living for God right up to the day we meet him face to face. That is the battle Sardis has to fight. But there is, of course, a very different danger for many churches. If some churches are a bit smug and resting on a big reputation... Plenty of other churches feel small and pathetic and vulnerable. They're disheartened by a sense of their own weakness. Maybe they're even paralyzed by it. The feeling in the church is, what can we do? Surrounded by this godlessness that's pressing in on us all the time. It feels like we're going to be squeezed and shaken until there's just nothing left of us. Many churches can feel like that. The church in Philadelphia is like that. It could hardly be more different from the church in Sardis. And in fact, the city of Philadelphia was just about the opposite of Sardis. Philadelphia was a city that had suffered some major earthquakes. If Sardis had a reputation for being unshakable, Philadelphia had a reputation for instability and frailty. And the church there is like that too. In verse 8, Jesus says, I know you have little strength. But before that, Look how Jesus introduces himself to this frail little church in verse 7. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. In the vision of chapter 1, Jesus is described as holding the keys of death and Hades, or death and the grave. Here, It's the key of David. And the background to this is found in the Old Testament. God promised King David an everlasting kingdom. It wouldn't come during David's lifetime. It was a promise for the future. And God said that kingdom would be established by one of David's descendants. 
And here Jesus says, I hold the key to that eternal kingdom. I'm the gatekeeper. If I open the door for you, you're in. Nothing and no one can keep you out. And after that announcement, Jesus then turns to this church in Philadelphia that seems so vulnerable, and he says to it in verse 8, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So Jesus isn't just the one who opens the door, he has opened the door for them. It's personal to them. He says, you're disheartened, I know that. You seem to be just limping along. You wonder if you're even going to make it. Or if you'll just peter out and come to nothing. But I have the key of the kingdom. And I have opened the door for you. No one can stop you making it. When we looked at Jesus' message to Smyrna a few weeks ago, we came across the expression, synagogue of Satan. And the background to that was the privileged status of the Jews in the Roman Empire. At least at this point in time, they had some privileges. And the most significant privilege was they were the only ones who didn't have to offer worship to the emperor. And we saw that in the early days of the church, the Romans treated Christianity as just another branch of Judaism. And so the Jews and the Christians escaped persecution. But by this stage, the Jewish leaders are beginning to distance themselves from Christians. One way they're doing that is by denying to the Romans that Jesus and his followers have any links to God's Old Testament promises. In essence, the Jews are saying to the Romans, these people have no place in God's kingdom. That was in Smyrna. But now we learn Smyrna isn't the only place this is happening. This frail little church in Philadelphia is on the receiving end of it too. And maybe it's getting to them. It's wearing them down. But Jesus reassures them. The Jewish leaders don't hold the key of David. In fact, if they deny Jesus, they're not true descendants of David at all. And they're not the gatekeepers of God's kingdom. Jesus is. And he has opened the door for these believers in Philadelphia. And look what he says about the Jewish opponents of the church in verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. In other words, it may look like this little church is going to disappear. It seems like it's hanging by a thread. But in fact, God is going to use it to make an impact on the community. Even some of its opponents will come and worship Jesus. Jesus is showing how deceptive appearances can be. This church worries it's going to be stamped out by its enemies. But Jesus says, just keep sharing the good news about me. And some of those who are now opposing you will come and join you. 
You think you have no strength and no power. But I will make your witness effective. As Jesus speaks to the church in Philadelphia, he gives a promise for the frail but faithful. I will make you secure and effective. Maybe we read this and think, well, surely you can't apply both of these messages to us. We can't be complacent and disheartened, can we? Maybe not at the same time. But don't we often find ourselves swinging between one and the other? Isn't that our tendency? Maybe we tend to feel complacent on Sundays when we're here in a reasonable crowd. But we arrive at work tomorrow morning or school and doesn't the complacency sometimes dissolve into a feeling of powerlessness? How can we ever make an impact on this society we live in? How can we even influence our family? People seem so closed off to our message. Often they're even aggressive against it. But Jesus says, don't despair. I hold the key to the kingdom. And I opened the door for you, didn't I? Well, that door is still open. Aggressive atheism cannot shut the door to my kingdom, Jesus says. Mindless materialism can't shut the door to my kingdom. Jesus says, only I decide when that door finally shuts. And as long as the door is open, people are going to come in. So keep going. You're small, but I will make you effective. Keep my word, he says. Stay true to my name. Call others into my kingdom and some will come. You might not live in a time or place where thousands are flocking in. But put your little strength in my service and I promise you some will come. And notice how Jesus ends this message. This is the frailest of the seven churches. But Jesus showers it with the strongest promises of security. In verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. In verse 10, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now the rest of this book is going to make it clear Jesus is not promising Christians will be exempt from suffering. 
In fact, we've already seen that in previous messages. Some in these churches have died and some will die for their faithfulness to Jesus. This is not a promise that every Christian will keep their physical life. Jesus is assuring them their place in his kingdom is secure. He has opened the door for them. And no trial or persecution can shut the door on them. Remember, Philadelphia was a city of instability and vulnerability, rocked by famous earthquakes. But Jesus is heaping up promises of permanence and stability to the church in Philadelphia. Look again at verse 12. To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. There's hardly a better picture of permanence than a pillar in a great building. And Jesus says, this kingdom I have welcomed you into is actually a temple. It's where God is. And you have a secure place in that temple. And then Jesus shifts the picture again, all describing the same thing. The kingdom is a temple, is now a city, the new Jerusalem. A city that is perfectly secure because it comes down out of heaven from God. This wobbly little church needs to fix its mind on these pictures of permanence. These promises of eternal stability. These are all ways of describing the future home we have with God. Revelation will also call it the new heaven and earth. We need to remember that when we come and put our trust in Jesus, we enter into something eternal and unshakable. What both of these messages are telling us is that we have to learn to see the church as Jesus sees it, not as it looks to us. When the church starts to congratulate itself for its success because it looks strong with money and buildings and big numbers and maybe big influence, when a church starts to take on that kind of comfortable mindset Jesus says, wake up. Don't rest on your human reputation. Don't think you can afford to snooze. If you don't press on with your eyes on me, you will fall. And when a church feels the opposite of complacent, when it feels like giving up, because it seems to be so weak and so ineffective, Then Jesus says something very similar. Don't judge yourself by human appearances. Look to me. Your security doesn't come from numbers. Don't think that it would do if you had numbers. Your security doesn't come from being accepted in society. Jesus says it comes from me. 
Look to me and you will see your true security and your permanence. Wherever we are as a church, and that might differ on any given day between complacency and discouragement, but wherever we are and wherever we are as individuals, we are called to keep going with our eyes on Jesus, not on ourselves. Our next song reminds us that our hope is built on nothing less than 